Chapter Nine of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. Never, perhaps, in my existence—an existence varied by dangers, by difficulties, by passions, and by follies—never did any day seem to drag so heavily towards its conclusion as that which lay between me and the meeting appointed for the following night. It was not alone that impatient expectation which lengthens time till moments seem eternities, but it was, added to this, that I had to find occupation for every moment, lest tardy regrets should interpose, and mingle bitter with what was ever a sweet cup to me, excitement. Verily do I believe that I crowded into that one day more employments than many men bestow upon a year. I rode through the whole town, I witnessed the bullfight, I wrote a letter to my father, God knows what it contained, for I know not, and I never knew. I read Plato, which was like pouring cold water on a burning furnace. I played on my guitar, I sung to it, I solved a problem of Euclid. I read a page of Descartes, and thousands of other things did I do, to fill up the horrid vacancy of each long expectant minute. At length, however, day waned, night came and the hour approached nearer and more near at ten o'clock i pretended fatigue and leaving father francis who seemed well inclined to consume the midnight oil i retired to my own apartment as if to bed old Houssay came to assist me but i made an excuse to send him away which though perhaps a lame one he was too old a soldier not to take at once he was a man that never asked any questions whatever the order was he obeyed it instantly and he was unrivalled at the quick conception of a hint thus i had scarcely finished my first sentence explanatory of my reasons for not requiring his services than running on at once to the conclusion he made his bow and quitted the room being left alone two more long hours did i wear out in the fever of expectation all noises gradually subsided in the town and in the house and everybody was evidently at repose before half-past eleven. This was now the longest half-hour of all. I thought the church clock must have gone wrong, and have stopped, and I was confirmed in this idea when I heard the midnight round of the patrol of the Holy Brotherhood pass by the house, as usual pushing at every door to see that they were closed for the night. Shortly after, however, the chimes of midnight began, and, with a beating heart, I descended the stairs, having previously ensured the means of opening the door without noise. In a moment after, the fresh night air blew chill upon my cheek, and conveyed a sort of shudder to my heart, which I could scarce help feeling as a sinister omen. But closing the door as near as I could, without shutting it entirely, I darted across the street, pushed open the little door, and entered. As I did so, the garments of a woman rustled against me, and I caught the same fair soft hand I had held the former night. It burned like a living fire, and as I held it in mine, it did not return or even seem sensible to the pressure, but my fingers felt almost scorched with the feverish heat of hers. Cautiously shutting the door, she led me by the hand up a flight of stairs to a small, elegant dressing-room, wherein, on the toilet-table, was a burning lamp. It shone dimly, but with sufficient light to show me that my fair companion, though lovely as ever, was deadly pale, 
and attributing it to that agitation which she could not but feel a thousand times more than even i did i attempted to compose her by a multitude of caresses and vows which she suffered me to lavish upon her almost unnoticed remaining with a mute tongue and wandering eye as if my words scarcely found their way to the seat of intellect at length laying her hand upon the hilt of my sword with a faint smile she said what a sword you should never come to see a lady with a sword and unbuckling it with her own hand she laid it on the table now proceeded she taking up the lamp and leading the way into a splendid room beyond now you must give me a proof of your love and she shut the door suddenly behind us with a quickness which almost made me start her whole conduct her whole appearance was strange that a girl of such high station should appear agitated at receiving in secret the first visit of one whom she had every right to look upon as a lover was not surprising but her eye wandered with a fearful sort of wildness and her cheek was so deadly deadly pale that i scarcely ever thought to see such a hue in anything living at the same time the hand with which she held one of mine as she led me on confirmed its grasp with a tighter and a tighter clasp till every slender burning finger seemed impressing itself on my flesh have you a firm heart asked she at length fixing her eyes upon me and compressing her full beautiful lips as if to master her own sensations i answered that i had and indeed as the agitation of passion gave way to other feelings called forth by her singular manner and behaviour the natural unblenching courage of my race returned to my aid and i was no longer the tremblingly impassioned boy that entered her house it is well said she come hither then and she led me towards what seemed a heap of cushions covered with a large sheet of linen for a moment she paused before them with her foot advanced as if about to make another step forward and her eye straining upon the motionless pile before her as if it were some very horrible object then suddenly taking the edge of the cloth she threw it back at once discovering the dead body of a priest weltering in its gore he seemed to have been a man of about thirty both by his form and face which was full and unmarked by any lines of age it was turned towards me and had been slightly convulsed by the pang of death but still even in the cold meaningless features i thought i could perceive that look of a habitually dissolute mind which stamps itself in ineffaceable characters and there was a dark determined scowl still upon the brow of death which to my fancy spoke of the remorseless violation of the most sacred duties the limbs were contracted and one of the hands clenched as if there had been a momentary struggle before he was mastered to his fate while the other hand was stretched out with all the fingers wide extended as while still striving to draw the last few agonizing breaths his gown was gashed on the left side and dripping with gore and it is probable that the wound is covered went directly to his heart from the great effusion of blood that had taken place it was a dreadful sight and after looking on it for a few moments in astonishment and horror i turned my aching eyes towards the lovely girl that had conducted me to such a strange and awful exhibition she too was gazing at it with that sort of fixed intensity of look 
which told me that her mind gathered there materials for strong and all-absorbing thoughts. "'In the name of heaven,' cried I, "'who has done this?' "'I,' answered she, with a strange degree of calmness, "'I did it.' "'And what on earth could tempt you?' I continued, "'to so bloody and horrible a crime?' "'You shall hear,' she replied. "'That man was my confessor. "'He took advantage of his power over my mind.' He won me to all that he wished, and then he turned to another, fairer perhaps, and equally weak. I discovered his treachery, but I needed it the less, as I had seen you, and for the first time knew what love was. But I warned him never to approach me again, if he would escape that Spanish revenge whose power he ought to have known. He came this very night, perhaps from the arms of another, and yet he dared to talk to me of passion and of love thinking me still weak enough to yield to him oh with what patience i was endued not to slay him then i bade him go forth and never to approach me again he became enraged he threatened to betray me to publish my name and he is what he is there was a dreadful pause she had worked herself up by the details to a pitch of almost frenzied rage and gazing upon the body of him that had wronged her with a flushed cheek and flashing eyes she seemed as if she would have smote him again the story is told cried she at length and now if you love me as you have said you must carry him forth and cast him into the great fosse of the city ha you will not you hate me you despise me then i must speak another language you shall yes you shall or both you and I will join him in the grave. And drawing a poniard from her bosom, she placed herself between me and the door. And do you think me so great a coward, replied I hastily, to be frightened into doing what I disapprove by a poniard in the hand of a woman? No, lady, no, I continued more kindly, believing her as I did to be disordered in mind by the intensity of her feelings. I pity you from my heart, I pity you for the base injuries you have suffered, and even, though I cannot but condemn the crime you have committed, I would do so much, very much, to soothe, to calm, to heal your wounded spirit. But... I spoke long, gently, kindly to her. It reached her heart. It touched the better feelings of what might have been a fine, though exquisitely sensitive, mind. And throwing away the poniard, she cast herself at my feet, where, clasping my knees, she wept till her agony of tears became perfectly fearful. I did everything I could to tranquillise her. I entreated, I persuaded, I reasoned, I even caressed. There was something so lovely, yet so terrible, in it all. Her face, her form, her agitation, the sweetness of her voice, the despairing, heart-broken expression of her eyes, that, in spite of her crime, I raised her from my feet, I held her in my arms, and I promised to do all that she would have me. After a time she began to recover herself, and, gently disengaging herself from me, she gazed at me with a look of calm, powerful, painful regret that I never can forget. Count Louis, she said, you must abhor me, and you have, alas, learned to do so at a moment when I have learned to love you the more. Your kindness has made me weep. It was what I needed. It has cleared a cloud from my brain, 
and I now find how very, very guilty I am. Do not take me to your arms. I am unworthy. They should touch me. But fly from me, and from this place of horror, as speedily as you can, for I will not take advantage of the generous offer you make to do that which I so ungenerously asked. I asked it in madness, for I feel that, within the last few hours, my reason has not been with me. It slept. I have now wept, and it is awake to all the misery I have brought upon myself. Go, go, leave me. I will stay and meet the fate my crime deserves. But, oh, I cannot bear to think upon the dishonour and misery of my father's old age. And again she wept as bitterly as before. Again I applied myself to soothe her, and, imprudently certainly, perhaps wrongly, insisted upon carrying away the evidence of her guilt, and disposing of it as she had first demanded. But two short streets lay between the spot where we were and the old boundary of the city, over which it was easy to cast the body into the water below. At that hour I was not likely to meet with any one, as all the sober inhabitants of the town were by this time in their first sleep and the guard had made its round some time before. I told her all this, and expressed my determination not to leave her in such dreadful circumstances, so that, seeing me resolved upon doing what I had proposed, the natural horror of death and shame overcame her first regret at the thought of implicating me, and she acquiesced. As I approached the body for the purpose of taking it in my arms, I will own, a repulsive feeling of horror gathered about my heart, and a slight shudder passed over me. She saw it, and casting her beautiful arms round my neck, held me back with a melancholy shake of the head, saying, No, no, no. But I again expressed myself determined, and suddenly pressing her burning lips to mine, she let me go. Pardon me, said she, it is the last I shall ever have, most generous of human beings and turning away she kneeled by her bedside hiding her face upon the clothes while i raised the body of the priest in my arms and bore it downstairs being fortunately of a very strong and vigorous mould and well hardened by athletic exercises i could carry a very great weight but never did i know till then how much more ponderous and unwieldy a dead body is than a living one i however gained the street with my burden and with a beating heart and anxious glaring eye proceeded as fast as i could towards the walls everything i saw caused me anxiety and alarm the small fountain in the corner of the calle de sol made me start and almost drop the body and each shadow that the moon cast across the street cost me many a painful throb at length however i reached the old rampart where it looks out over the olive grounds and advancing hurriedly forward I gave a glance around to see that no one was there, and cast the corpse down into the fosse, which was full of water. I heard the plunge of the body and the rush of the agitated waters, and a shudder passed over me to think of thus consigning the frail tabernacle that not long since had enshrined a sinful but immortal spirit to a dark and nameless grave. All the weaknesses of our nature cling to the rites of sepulture, and at any time I should have felt, in so dismissing a dead body to unmourned oblivion, that I was violating the most sacred prejudices of our nature, but when I thought upon the how and the wherefore, my blood felt chill, 
and I dared not look back to see the full completions of that night's dreadful deeds. My heart was lightened, however, that it was now done, and I turned to proceed home, having had enough of adventure to serve me for a long while. Before I went, I gave an anxious glance around to see whether anyone was watching me, but all seemed void and lonely. I then darted away as fast as I could, still concealing myself in the shadowy sides of the streets, and following a thousand turnings and windings to ensure that my path was not tracked. At length, approaching the street where I lived, I looked round carefully on all sides, and seeing no one, darted up it, sprang forward, and pushed open the door of my lodging. At that moment a figure passed me coming the other way. It was the Chevalier de Montenero, and though he evidently saw me, he went on without remark. I closed the door carefully, groped my way up to my own chamber, and, striking a light, examined my doublet to see if it had received any stains from the gory burden I had carried. In spite of every precaution I had taken, it was wet with blood in three places, and I had much trouble in washing out the marks, though it was itself of murray-coloured cloth somewhat similar in hue. Difficult it is to tell my feelings while engaged in this employment. The horror, the disgust, at each new stain I discovered, mingled with the painful anxiety to efface every trace which the blood of my fellow-being had left. Then, to dispose of the water, whose sanguine colour kept glaring at me whenever I turned, as if I could see nothing but it, became the question, and I was obliged to open the casement and pour it gently over the window-sill, without unclosing the jalousies, so as to permit its trickling down the front of the house, where I knew it must be evaporated before the next morning. This took me some time, as I did it by but very cautious degrees. But then, when it was done, all vestiges of the deed in which I had been engaged were effaced, and to my satisfaction I discovered, on examining every part of my apparel with the most painful minuteness, that all was free and clear. Extinguishing my light, I now undressed and went to bed, but of course not to sleep. For hours and hours the scenes in which I had that night taken part, floated upon the blank darkness before my eyes, and filled me with horrible imaginations. A thousand times did I attempt to banish them, and give myself up to slumber, and a thousand times did they return in new and more horrible shapes, till the faint light of the morning began to shine through the openings of the blinds, when I fell into a disturbed and feverish sleep. It was no relief, it was no oblivion, the same dreadful scenes returned with all their original force, heightened and rendered still more terrific by a thousand wild accessories that uncontrolled fancy brought forward to support them. All was horror and despair, and I again woke, haggard and worn out, as the matin bell was sounding from the neighbouring convent. I tried it once more, and at length succeeded in obtaining a temporary forgetfulness. End of chapter 9